neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. been looking at this, uh, the start of this chapter for some time now, just looking at who this God is, who speaks, uh, a God who speaks, who saves, a jealous God and so on, a God who loves more than he punishes and so on. We've been looking at something of the character of God, but just to put the whole thing in its setting, the world that we live in and we ourselves, all made by God, he's the creator of everything. And when he made the world, initially, he gave a commandment or one prohibition, one thing that people were forbidden to do. He, he, he set the first man and woman in a beautiful garden that he created for them. He gave them instructions to work there and to, uh, to, to, to look after, to manage that garden. But one prohibition, he said, you must not eat from the fruit of that tree that's in the middle of the garden. One thing they were not to do, and of course, they broke that commandment. We know the story. It's there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. So there, uh, God has made everything. Everything is subject to him. One thing they're told not to do, and that's the very thing they do. Now, generations have passed until we come to this point that we've just read about in Exodus chapter 20. Many generations have passed, and now God is introducing law. The so-called Ten Commandments. Law is introduced. The Ten Commandments are given, which are a full statement, a full account of God's standards, how God is, and therefore what God requires of those he has created. Of course, he is absolutely entitled to bring commandments because he made us, and he made us for himself. We're made by him, and we're made for him. And so we have just read those ten commandments. The question then is, how do we view them through New Testament eyes. 
We're living not in the Old Testament, we're living in the new covenant that God has established. So we, we come back to the Ten Commandments from the perspective of the New Testament. How do we look at these commandments with New Testament eye, eyes? And just looking at these, I think, should I go through them one at a time, preaching each one? Well, that is a possibility, although what would happen then, I would have ten weeks, or you would have ten weeks, of preaching law. And the Bible says, the New Testament says, we're not under law, but under grace. Ten weeks of law. And of course, I don't preach every week, so it span, well, the next six months of law, Sunday after Sunday. You shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall not do the other. But we don't preach law. So how do we approach this? How do we tackle it? What we see here, and I read all ten of them, what we see here is a high and right standard. And incidentally, the Ten Commandments are so important. So how about a challenge here to everyone who is 12 or under? Let's set it at 12. To by next Sunday have learned all ten. I see little Sarah Mayton has been given a hard look there by her parents. Yes, Sarah, it will be wonderful. <laughs> when I say learn, I don't mean learn from verse 3 through to the end of verse 17 to learn it all, but just the commandments. So if you're 12 or less, to be able to repeat word perfect from this version of the Bible, verse 3, Verse 4, verse 7, verse 8, 12, 13, 14, 15, uh, 15, 16, and 17. So it's not the whole thing, not all the, the application of the commandments, but just the commandments. I'll say it again in case you're taking notes. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 7. Verse 8, verse 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Anyone under 12? That's the, in fact, over 12, that's not a bad challenge. <laughs> so parents, help your children. Children, test your parents. <laughs> I was going to say I'll offer a prize to anyone, but no, that's maybe I'd uh, maybe be uh, be broke by Christmas. But uh, children, that's a challenge. Learn the Ten Commandments. These are a high standard, but a right standard of what God what God is like and what God intends for those He has created. And let's say, let's see it. These are commands. They're not just ideals. They're not suggestions, commands. These are the basis for how God is going to judge us finally and the basis by which he judges people now. This, these are the maker's instructions, if you like. God has created everything. Now this is what we are required to do. This is God's law given to his creation. Commands, not suggestions, 
It's what God requires. And they fall into three basic groups. The first four are about honoring God. No other gods before me. You shall not make an idol and bow down to it. Not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. There are four commands about honoring God. The fifth one is about honoring our parents. And then the third group about honoring people. So three sections, honoring God, honoring parents, honoring people. That's the summary. And God gives these commands not just to bring restriction, but again and again the emphasis is so that things should go well with you. You see, life can only be good where these commands are obeyed. That's always God's intention. As I say, the maker's instructions are normally given to us so that whatever it is should operate properly. And God gives these commandments so that life should go well. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, that is stressed. And incidentally, in um, doing, as in my want, the Daily Telegraph crossword, I discovered a happy discovery that Deuteronomy is um, uh, one more duty. That's, it's an anagram of one more duty. Did you know that? The word Deuteronomy. You can just put that in your notes as well. But uh, that helps you to find the book. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. God says, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. So follow them so that you can live and go in and take possession of the land. Don't add to what I command you. Don't subtract to it. Keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Then it goes on to speak about uh, how important it is. Um, observe them carefully, it says, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord God is near us whenever we pray and so on? He's saying, if you do these things, teach them to your children, it says, and to their children after them, because it will go well with you. And that said again and again in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy uh, and verse 29. And again, in, well, it's throughout the book, but it says, God says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it may go well with them and their children forever. Life only functions properly when we obey God. That, of course, parents, that's why we give instructions to our children, isn't it? We don't just give them commands for the sake of throwing our weight around. We will tell them things like instructing them carefully how to cross the road. We will say about looking this way and looking that way and listening and then going across in a straight line. Just a short while ago, I was meandering across the road out here and some child told me off because I should have gone across in a straight line. Um, yes, well done. Uh, we, we, we say these things because we, what we want our children to be safe. And not only to be safe, but we want them to relate well with other people. So we'd also tell them things that are not about their safety, but just about showing respect for other people. 
So, parents, I'm sure you have taught your children that when they come on a Sunday, they don't keep kicking the chair in front all the time that I'm speaking because the person in front is going to get a headache. Um, so, I'm not that I can see anyone doing that, but yeah, we would tell them things that are for the good of others as well, so that we want them to be safe and we want them to be good in their relationship with others. Then things function well. We want to train for that. And God gives these commandments so that his creation functions well. And the New Testament gives a pretty impressive verdict on the Ten Commandments or on the law of God as a whole. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, in the New Testament, Romans 7 and verse 12, it says, The law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That's it. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. And then uh, later on in, uh, in verse 14, it says, the law is spiritual. And then in verse 22 of the same chapter, Romans 7, it says, I delight in God's law. God's law is holy, righteous, good, spiritual, and a delight. That's what the New Testament has to say about it. So, God's commandments represent a high standard, a right standard, and they're not suggestions, they are commands. Absolute requirements given to us by our holy creator and our judge. A high, right standard. It's then, of course, that we come to the problem. And the problem is that we are fallen and wrong. So there is God's holy and right standard, and we face it with a fallen and wrong spirit. God, God's law is holy, righteous, and good. It's spiritual. I can delight in it. But me fallen and wrong. And so the effect of God's law is not to produce what it should. And so still in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul makes this observation. He says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. The very introduction of law means trespass now becomes an issue. A trespass is when you break a law. God said to Adam and Eve, you must not take the fruit of that tree. The, the law brought a trespass. They instant, instantly looked at that tree. They thought it looks good. Surely God can't be right in what he says. We know better than God. That's highly desirable. And so the law brings a trespass. And that's what Paul says. Law come, is added so that trespass increases. That's the way it works. And he says then in the next chapter in Romans 7. And verse 7. I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the Lord not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. We can identify with that, can't we? As soon as we're told not to do something, that is the very thing that we can, is drawn to our attention, and we think, why not? What will happen if I do do it? 
And so that curiosity, rebellion, these things come in. We, we know it well, don't we? No, you're all looking at me so holy. Of course you don't. You can't identify with what I'm saying because you instinctively obey everything. But fallen human beings know that a commandment produces a rebellion. And so the, the whole issue of uh, states bringing law, and of course laws are multiplying at an alarming rate, are they making society better? No, they're just increasing revenue through fines. <laughs> because laws create a reaction, a rebellion. We break that law. And that's, that's what fallen human nature does. And so uh, there Paul says that sin kind of gets hold of the commandment and produces the very opposite because we instinctively rebel against law and we re instinctively rebel against everything that we perceive to be a law. So even good advice, which is not law, we can still say, who says so? Who gave you the right to say and Do you think you know better than me? It's, like it's always a rebellion. And of course, that is an issue even amongst God's people. So in, say, leading a church, one has got to be so careful because we can exhort people, which we're entitled to do, and people can say, oh, that's a bit heavy. And we can even give advice and say, yeah, don't miss that. That would be good. Oh, pressure. Yeah, we, we rebel against things because we perceive things as law. And when something's a law, we don't want to do it. We want to go our way. Who are you to tell me? And so on. That's a normal human reaction. And so law, which is good, is holy, righteous, good, spiritual, a delight, it actually makes things worse. Because we break the law, that's one thing we've done wrong, and then we can excuse that, hide it, try and cover it over, blame someone else, do whatever, and so the thing just gets worse and worse. That's what law does, because the problem with law is, although it, it is excellent, we are not. Our nature is twisted, and law can't help a twisted nature. We always react badly to law. And of course, that is the struggle that parents have. You want to train your children. You want to train them to be obedient. You can maybe take hold of that excellent thing in the Psalms where it speaks of God guiding us with his eye. And we say, that's how I want to train my children, so that I can guide them with my eye. I just look, and they know what I'm saying. And they just obey. We want to train our children for obedience. And, of course, that is one of the commandments. Children, honor your father and mother. But we know full well that just to say to our children, you know, maybe you're going out, you say, be good while I'm out. Does that bring about instant angelic behavior? Probably not. <laughs> The commandment doesn't actually work with human nature because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't actually help us. It commands or it forbids, but it doesn't assist. 
There's the, we have there the Ten Commandments. Wonder, a wonderful statement of what God requires of us. A wonderfully high standard. But those commandments don't stretch out a helping hand to say, and now I'm going to enable you to do it. They simply say it. And our nature reacts against it. And so the result, at best, can actually be pretty bad. And Paul explores that, doesn't he, in in his letter to the Romans and in Romans chapter 7, where incidentally he is not speaking about normal Christian experience. He's just speaking about how fallen human nature reacts to law. And in Romans 7, he takes us to the ultimate, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of sin? He's speaking about someone who actually delights in God's law, who says, it's good, I want to do it. You see, that's why I say, at best, this is someone who actually agrees with God's law. They want to do it, but can they do it? No. And so you look at it, and you admire it, and you, you, you make resolutions, I'm going to be different from now on. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop being like this. We make these resolutions... But the law is simply telling us it doesn't stretch out a helping hand. And so we end up failing yet again. So one writer said, every new attempt is a new kind of failure. Result? Depression. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? That's the best that law can do. For those who appreciate it and agree with it, it drives you to despair because we can't come up with the goods. But of course, most people are not even going to agree with it. And so the response for most will be one of indifference or in some, they will kid themselves that they are doing, producing the goods and it leads to pride, a critical spirit, judgmental attitudes to other people, And so we take some of those laws and then we start looking around and we start accusing people of breaking them, thinking, well, I'm fine because I'm pretty good. It it can lead to pride, judgmental attitudes, whatever it leads to, there's one thing it doesn't lead to, and that's holiness. doesn't produce that. The holy law of a holy God does not produce holiness because it's encountering our fallen wrong spirit. Tragically, that's the impression that many people have of Christianity. That it's about high standards and hypocrisy. High standards that we preach and declare and say we believe, but then There's hypocrisy, not living up to it. Many people just have that caricature of what Christianity is all about. It's all about laws, they see it. And sadly, not only is that the the caricature that people have of Christianity, sadly, some Christians even present it like that. Some churches present it like that. Demands, you must do this, you must... Manipulation sense of you've got to perform, you've got to appear in a certain way, you've got to measure up to a certain standard, and the sense of criticism, judgment, and general sense of control, and so on. It's tragic. But that is not 
the new covenant. That is not where we are. I began by saying, how do we look at law through New Testament eyes? And what we see is the law is excellent. We are not. So what's the good news then? What good news do we have? Well, of course, the new covenant is about good news. It's called the gospel. And the word gospel means just that, good news. To understand this good news, we've got to, first of all, appreciate this about law. That God's law actually doesn't help us, it condemns us. And it's vital to see that, and vital to admit it. God's law condemns us, and we need help. We don't understand that, we'll never understand the gospel. We start from that point that these are God's standards, and if we are honest, then we can read through the list and see there an account of our failure. No other gods before me. Not to bow down to anything else. Not to misuse the name of the Lord our God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does that involve? What does that mean? Honor your father and mother. Have we consistently done that? Have we lived consistently in thought as well as in action according to this law? And so it goes on. You shall not murder. You can say, well, I haven't killed anyone. But then Jesus said, if you look at someone hating them, it's, 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 it's in your mind. And he applied the whole thing not just to our actions, but to how we think. To how you look at someone lustfully is is adulterous, not stealing. And so, well, the law condemns us, and we need to start there. We need to say we need help. The Bible says all have sinned. And that's everyone. Everyone who's ever been created apart from one. And that one is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one in all of history who has ever lived without sin. And it's because of him that the gift of God is given to us freely of salvation. Jesus fully obeyed the law. Absolutely, totally. In thought, And in action. His life. Viewed from the outside. And looked at on the inside. Was perfect. That's Jesus. The son of God. Resisting sin. Keeping himself holy. Why? Because there was a job he had to do. Send into the world. To do a job. And that job. Was to take our place. Suffering the punishment for our sin instead of us. And so all our wrongdoing, which we've got to admit, we have broken God's law. When we admit that and we see, and that leads to punishment. That leads to death. But that punishment is taken by someone who didn't deserve it because his life was pure. But because his life was pure, there was nothing to punish in him. And so when he's punished, it's not for anything he's done, because there's nothing in him that needs punishing. And he takes our sin, takes our place, punished for us. So that the free gift of God comes to us. Salvation, restored to relationship with God, all freely given. By grace, the Bible says, the free gift of God. 
But even there, there's a problem. Even in the good news of free salvation, there is a problem. And the problem is this. How do you treat free gifts? Around this time of year, get a lot of these mail shots for various charities inviting you to contribute. Many of the mail shots have the free gift of a pen. Do you treasure that pen? Do you think, I got, this was given to me. Well, you look at it and think you use it a bit and you don't care if you lose it. Free gifts. Free gifts are, you know, I was going to say to a penny. No, they're free. They come from all quarters and we can value them a bit or maybe not. And a free gift is particularly not valued when you never really needed it in the first place. On the other hand, of course, if there's something that you really wish you could have, but you know it's way beyond your means, and no matter how hard you saved, you'd never be able to afford it. And maybe you even torture yourself by looking at it in the shop, and you see it there, but you think, oh, if only. And then if someone were to get that for you and give it to you for nothing, then you would value it. But that's because you really wanted it. And that was because you knew it was out of your reach. And now you've got it. Wow. And you treasure it. That's why we need to start by seeing the reality of our sin. To see we need salvation. Because the free gift of God coming to us, if we're not really, we think we're pretty good. I'm done too badly. Then we can even be casual about the free gift of salvation through the death of the Son of God on our behalf. You only value what you realize you desperately need and you could never have acquired by yourself. So there is a problem even in the free gift. But nonetheless, it's a free gift. Because that's the only way that we could ever have relationship with God and ever cancel our breaking of God's law. So we receive the free gift of salvation. And presumably that is why many of us are here this morning, because we've received the free gift of salvation. We now belong to God. He is our Heavenly Father. We are His children. And we're singing songs about what happened at the cross and how Jesus has dealt with our sin. We are saved for eternity. Nothing's going to separate us from God's love. We rejoice in that fact. But we need to understand it clearly. What, where, what does that bring us into? What is our position now with regard to God's law? These Ten Commandments that we began by reading and that all the children are going to memorize by next week and maybe even some of the adults. What is our position with regard to God's law? Some say, well, the grace of God in Christ kind of wipes out the law. We're saved unconditionally because of what Jesus did. And therefore, how we behave doesn't matter because nothing's going to separate us from God's love. And so then, apathy beckons. Doesn't matter. Why bother? That's some people's understanding of this new covenant. We've come into a place where really nothing matters anymore. 
And it's a bit of a puzzle, really, uh, to see how when you go on to read your New Testament, you read of the apostles serving God diligently. You read of the early church devoting themselves unanimously to prayer. You read of them praying all night. You read of all that Paul suffered. You think, why? Why not just chill out? Grace surely means you don't have to bother. Apathy is what it's all about. That, I hasten to say, is a misunderstanding. There's always a danger when it's important, you see, that we not only set out the truth, but we set out what isn't true. The danger is when you do that, that some people whose minds have been wandering click back in when you're preaching what isn't true. And so some of you have now thought, ah, apathy is what it's all about. Good, I'll do that. A friend of mine at university said in, uh, in a different university, said in his university there was an apathetic society. People got thrown out for attending the meetings. Some people view church like that. It's an apathetic society and uh, you just don't have to go. Because who cares? Uh, grace wipes the slate clean and we're saved forever. Once saved, always saved. Shrug your shoulders, who cares? Other people look at this message of grace and they say it's too good to be true. And that again can be our reaction to free gifts. Someone phones you, you get one of these infuriating phone calls, good news, you have just won a holiday in Florida. You think, yeah, put the phone down. Yeah, some things you think these are just is not true. It's too good to be true. And we can treat the gospel like that. It can't really believe that all my, all my sin, my actions and my thoughts, past, present, future, all of it is fully dealt with. Surely I've got to do something. Surely payback time is going to come sometime when God is going to say, right, now I've done this for you, I expect you to do this for me. Surely We've got to do something. And so people get on to a kind of weary treadmill of performing duties to sort of just keep the record straight. What if God actually is not as good as the gospel seems to make out? I better actually perform. I better actually keep attending things, doing things, going through spiritual disciplines, because can't really believe it's as good as they say. Misunderstandings about grace, and they are misunderstandings. So what is this new covenant? And what do we do about God's law? Well, in the Old Testament, as they look forward to what God is going to do, they speak about a new covenant that God is going to bring. But it's called this. A covenant of the Spirit. That makes the difference. How? In this way, the old covenant, as we've said, were words. Ten commandments, then added to and filled out in the subsequent chapters there in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God's law filled out and applied to every area of life. Words... Words that don't reach out a helping hand. Words that don't assist you. The new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. And this covenant is where 
Jesus, having dealt with our sin and wiped the charge sheet clean, ascending to heaven, having finished that work, then pours out his spirit. So then we have the law of a holy God here, but that holy God putting his spirit in us. So that now it's not just words on a page, but the spirit of the one who gave those words is now in us, filled with the spirit, and the spirit is called the Holy Spirit. What the law could never do was make us holy. That's what we said. It always brought rebellion, resistance, arguing back cover up, whatever. Couldn't make us holy. But now the Spirit of God comes, the Holy Spirit, to fill us so that what was not possible before becomes possible. And so again, in Paul's letter to the Romans, after chapter 7 speaks about despair, Paul now gets back to the gospel. Chapter 7 was never about the gospel. Chapter 7 was about the law and saying, what does it do and what can't it do? In chapter 8, he says, verse 3, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. There's the difference. The righteous requirements of the law fully met in us who don't live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, over the years, I've used a a picture many times, and I will not therefore do it again, but I've just spoken about the consequences for people if I were able to impart my spirit to you. And we won't run that again because I've said it before and people have been alarmed at the mere thought of what could happen if they got filled with my spirit. I'll tell you one thing that would happen incidentally. In the coffee break, if you are filled with my spirit, you'd go down to the bookstore and you'd buy books. (laughs) But you can't be filled with my spirit, so that's probably not going to happen. There are all sorts of other things that would happen if you're filled with my spirit. If my spirit was in you, there'd still be your nature, but my spirit. And so there'd be things happening, sort of instincts. You think, where did that come from? But your own nature would also be there, and you'd be saying, what's going on? And you'd suppress this strange voice that is rising in you, uh, and you would continue perhaps to live just as you always have done but maybe a change would happen because you'd actually start responding to these new instincts but I can't do it so there you're safe God can he gives us his spirit and so now there are two voices in us it's notice what it said in Romans who don't live according to the sinful nature or according to the flesh but according to the spirit There are two voices. There's your flesh, as the Bible calls it, your sinful nature, how you always have been when you hear law. The law of God says this or that, and how do we react? That voice is still there. But there is another voice. The voice of God. The Spirit of God. And we have a choice. Which do we listen to now? 
The new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. We've had a new birth, born again, and a new Spirit put in us. And that new Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Bible says is working in us to will and to do what pleases God. To will and do. Wanting to obey and able to obey. Romans chapter 7, under law, as wanting to obey, but can't do it. Every new attempt, a new kind of failure. But living according to the Spirit, the power of God, there's wanting to obey, and I'm free to obey God. Because it's a covenant of the Spirit. We don't just say, who cares about law, it's all grace. The Spirit of God doesn't say that to us. The Spirit of God says, I love your law, O God. I delight to do your will. That's what the Spirit of God says. The Spirit of God cooperates with God because He is God's Spirit. And we are in a covenant of the Spirit where there is now that in us that wants to obey God. Jesus said, the Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Two voices. Two natures. And the choice is ours. You see, when we become a Christian, God doesn't mount a takeover bid. He doesn't obliterate our will or our nature. He doesn't take us over completely so that we become kind of robots. Because God wants our heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And so God puts his spirit in us. The flesh is still real. Now, where's our heart? Do we see what God has done? This wonderful God who gives us his holy law, and it's beyond us, and we we end up condemned by it, and yet he then says, I'm going to make it possible for you to be right with me. So he sends his son. Jesus comes, takes our sin, suffers a horrific death. Not only crucifixion and scourging, which is dreadful beyond the capacity of our minds to imagine, but God's holy anger against what we've done. That's what he really suffered. There are people either side of him being crucified. But what was unique about his death was God's anger against sin that he suffered. Can we... Look at that and say, but I'm just going to carry on living as before. Or, yeah, apathy seems a pretty good idea. Surely, we say, God did that for me. Jesus, you did that for me. Having ascended on high, you then poured out your spirit so that the righteous requirements of this law, which condemned me before, now I can do it. Well, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to opt for one of these things. Either it's too good to be true that I've got to keep trying to please God. I am accepted. But, oh God, not as accepted, I'm now empowered to please you. And, Lord, I love you. And it's because I love you that I do these things. not trying to earn your love. not trying to prove anything. It's out of love that we do what God says. These commandments can be received joyfully. Not now as 
you shall not, but you need not. It's God saying, you don't have to live in sin. You don't have to live in disobedience. You don't have to be a rebel all your life. Things can change. Where you gladly do God's will. From an inner change that is supernatural. Where suddenly, by faith, our relationship with God is transformed. By faith, our relationships with our family transformed. And by faith, our relationships with other people are transformed. The three categories of the Ten Commandments. Honoring God, honoring family, honoring people. It changes when the Spirit of the God who gave us that law now comes into us and we're filled with His Spirit. Then we honor God. Oh, we love to honor God. We love to worship Him. And we honor our family in, a, in the way the Bible says. We love that. Relationships in the home are changed. Parents, by faith, training their children to be obedient. Children, when they're saved, by faith, honoring their parents. Growing well, thriving in God. And then relating well with other people. Viewing people in a holy way. Because we love God. It's by faith. But the choice is ours. God hasn't mounted a takeover bid. He doesn't implant a kind of a brain implant, so now we've got to do what he says. We've got no choices. Now there's the flesh and the spirit. We don't live according to the flesh. We live according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh will die. Those who live according to the spirit will live forever. That's the Bible truth. It's good, good news. How do we view this law? We love it. It doesn't condemn us. Jesus condemned in our place so that the righteous requirements of the law can be fully met in us who don't live according to the, spirit, uh, to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's good news. But God wants us to make the choice. The choice is one we have to make on a daily basis. It's not a once-for-all thing. On a daily basis, a moment-by-moment basis, we face the choice, the flesh or the spirit. Going to do what my instincts tell me or am I going to do what God tells me? I'm going to do what God tells me because of the cross. Let's always keep making that decision.